we've seen across the board in multiple industries, but especially in healthcare, these corporations, these employers using the pandemic as an excuse, as a reason to institute these cost-cutting measures that simply help the bottom line at the expense of patients and workers. And what we're seeing here is the CDC doing what they can to make that long-term, to make that not just about COVID, but about every single infectious disease that we see in healthcare settings. to the death panel to support the show become a patron at patreon.com slash death panel pod to get access to our second weekly bonus episode and entire back catalog of past bonus episodes and if you'd like to help us out a little bit more share the show with your friends post about your favorite episodes pick up a copy of health communism at your local bookstore pre-order a copy of jules's new book coming in january called a short history of trans misogyny or request them both at your local library and follow us at death panel underscore so i'm here today with my co-host abby cardis hello And the two of us are joined by returning guest Jane Thomason. Jane is the lead industrial hygienist for National Nurses United, known as NNU. And we recently had Jane on to talk about how the CDC and its advisory committee on infection control in healthcare, known as HICPAC, are trying to weaken infection control guidance for healthcare settings in the United States. And we have her back today to check back in on what's been going on and how NNU is looking for help trying to stop this dangerous shift in guidance that will make healthcare less safe for everyone and directly undermines the health and safety of workers in healthcare settings. Jane, welcome back to the show. It is so nice to get a chance to speak with you again. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be back. Though, honestly, I wish it were under better circumstances, Um, but still, nonetheless, I really appreciate you taking the time to walk us through, um, you know, last time, especially that was an episode that folks really appreciated. It was really Mm -hmm. helpful. And obviously, since, as I mentioned at the top, Jane, you're one of the key folks at NNU who is organizing against this attempt to um, shift guidance and weaken infection control guidance in favor of healthcare employers. And this comes at the expense of health and safety for workers and healthcare users. And since the last time that we spoke, there have been some developments, some new documents that NNU has been able to get through a Freedom of Information Act request that I think when the last time we spoke had been repeatedly denied, if I recall correctly. And of course, there's another meeting coming up, and you also have another ask for folks that we can get into. But since there might be people listening today who are not up to speed about what's been going on, do you mind just sort of starting us at the top here and briefly walking through what has happened, what you've been doing with NNU, and also what's happened since we last spoke and sort of get into sort of what some of the updates are that we're going to be talking about today? Okay. How many minutes do you have? (laughs) Um, (laughs) I'll I'll be brief. So the short version here is that, like B said, the CDC's Healthcare Infection Control Practices Advisory Committee is working on updating infection control guidance. Um, And this is the guidance document that everyone goes to whenever they're deciding what protections that healthcare workers or patients need when we're dealing with an infectious disease. So it has really broad ranging impacts. And there's two issues here. One is that the process that the CDC is going through to make these updates is not publicly 
transparent. It's not got a lot of good opportunities for the public to engage. So there's a lot of issues around a lot of these updates being done behind closed doors. The other issue here is that what the work group has presented publicly, they've, they've given updates um, every few months on what they're working on. And what they've presented actually fails to recognize a lot of the scientific evidence on aerosol transmission. It fails to mm -hmm. update the guidance actually update based on the science that's evolved in the last 20 years, and it proposes to move us actually backwards from what current guidance says. So we're really, you know, this is a good time to be updating the guidance, but what HICPAC and the CDC are actually putting forward as these updates is, is not in the right direction. It, it, it's going to put healthcare workers, patients, visitors, anyone who walks into a healthcare facility at higher risk of a wide range of infectious diseases. So that's the short version of what they're working on here. And HICPAC was set to actually vote to finalize these updates at their August meeting. And I want to say a huge thank you to your listeners and to you all for engaging around the August meeting, because A, it was a huge outpouring of support. It was amazing to see. But more importantly, the CDC was clearly inundated and moved by the number of people who were engaging and weighing in on these issues. And they mm -hmm. actually delayed the vote from the August meeting to the November meeting, which is scheduled for November 2nd and 3rd. But we'll get to that a little bit later. Right. That's coming up right around the corner. Right around the corner. <laughs> um, but the other thing to say kind of like about what's happened in the interim is that this public action, this public pressure has really moved the CDC to improve transparency in, in their process in, in some ways. They've not done enough, but we have some wins. Like we're clearly having an impact here. For example, the CDC is now posting meeting recordings and presentations on their website, something that HICPAC staff told me a year ago would never happen. Mm -hmm. And that's that's happening because of all this public support. Um, they've done other things like changing the order of their HICPAC meeting agendas so that HICPAC actually hears from the public before they vote, which was not the case at these meetings ahead of the August meeting. For every past HICPAC meeting, they voted before they heard from the public. Um, so that's a major win in terms of public input and transparency here. And then the other piece that I would highlight here, there's there's some others, but the highlight the piece that I would highlight is that the CDC has shared summaries of work group meetings with NNU. We have posted those publicly online. This is the first time we've had a view into what the work group is actually doing and talking about. Again, this is something that the CDC told me would never happen. They refused our FACA request, our Federal Advisory Committees Act request. They refused our FOIA request. Um, but because of all this public pressure, they eventually sent us the work group meeting summaries. And you can go and read them. You can go to our website and read them if you want to, nationalnursesunited.org. But having done a deep dive into them, it just confirms all of the serious concerns that we've had about this process and about the content of what they're going to propose. Absolutely. And we'll get into what some of the analysis of the documents has, has shown. And, and again, a lot of this supports things that are themes we've been talking about on this show for a very long time about who is being or not necessarily who, but which interests are being prioritized in the setting of various pandemic related guidelines. And this is a really great example of that. I wonder, Jane, if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about the aerosolized transmission piece um, at length. 
aerosolized transmission uh, was recognized very late by the CDC in the United States. And this is something that, you know, even some of the folks involved in the pandemic response who were like least likely to ever admit, you know, culpability or wrongdoing or having done a mistake will own up to the fact that they should have probably um, said something about this sooner. But the, the ultimate fact of the matter is, is that one of the very key and very sort of urgent parts of this is that aerosolized transmission is not recognized in what appears to be the guidance that may be voted on. Again, part of the issue here is that we don't have the draft. We don't have access to the draft. But um, as we discussed last time, you know, we do have some idea of what's in there. Do you think you could just walk through sort of what the issue is and what's going on specifically around aerosolized transmission? Because I know that we touched on it last time, but folks also definitely um, reached out to us to hear more about that part specifically. That's really awesome. I'm glad folks are interested in that because this is a huge piece of um, what's happening here. So over the last few decades, there has been a ton of research finding that this idea of there being a fine distinction between droplet transmitted um, pathogens and airborne transmitted pathogens is just, it's its not reflective of reality. It's like, it's actually, there's a lot of research about this being based on an old error uh, decades ago. And what the science shows is that anytime anyone who's infected with, say, influenza or COVID or RSV, like a lot of these major respiratory illnesses that we're dealing with in an ongoing way, uh, anytime someone who's infected with those viruses, they breathe, they speak, they cough, they sneeze, they sing, they eat, they have a medical procedure performed on their airway, they emit infectious virus. And that infectious virus is contained in particles, in aerosols. So these are particles that can be suspended and travel in and travel through the air up to um, studies show that these infectious particles can travel through the air up to uh, 24 to 27 feet away from where they are emitted. They can be small enough that they can stay suspended in the air for hours, if not uh, days, um, depending upon things like airflow, ventilation rates, filtration if you're indoors, and environmental conditions like humidity and temperature. And so what this means is that we really need to update how we understand how infectious diseases are transmitted in healthcare settings. So right now, when you have a patient who comes in with respiratory symptoms, they're sneezing, they're coughing, they've got some a runny nose, they might be asked to put on a surgical mask and they may or may not actually be isolated. They're mm -hmm. likely to actually stay in the waiting room with everyone else. And um, unless they are tested for COVID, they're actually relatively unlikely to be isolated even in a single patient room. And that that's not the right move, right? Because yeah. there's all of this evidence showing that, you know, every time they breathe, they're emitting infectious virus that when you have someone who's even if they're six or 10 feet away, they could still be exposed and infected, especially when we're talking about healthcare settings, where there are a lot of people who are already sick. There's a lot of people who are very vulnerable and immunocompromised. And it's it's not just patients, right? Like healthcare workers themselves can also be in high risk categories, mm -hmm. can also be immunocompromised. Mm -hmm. And so it, we really need to think about, you know, it's multiple measures, right? It's a Swiss cheese approach. We need ventilation, right? To reduce the amount of infectious aerosol that's in the air that builds up in waiting rooms or hallways or even exam rooms or inpatient rooms. 
Um, but we also need PPE and personal protective equipment, respiratory protection for healthcare workers. Um, we also need universal masking, particularly universal masking with N95s, which have been shown to be better source control. So thinking about someone who's coming in who's infected, trying to have as little of that infectious virus in the air of that that shared air as possible. Um, N95s are better at that. And just to bring this back to HICPAC, so that's kind of like a, a brief overview of, of what we've learned and kind of where we need to go with this. To bring this back to what HICPAC is proposing, so the work group presented their proposals in June, and this is, you know, it bears out in the work group meeting summaries, which we can talk about in more detail in a second. But they are proposing to actually get rid of the droplet airborne dichotomy, that language, and replace it with just one category of transmission through the air. That's definitely a step in the right direction. But when you look at what they're proposing in terms of the three new categories for precautions for what protections are put in place to try to reduce transmission from infected patients, they are relying on medical surgical face masks to protect healthcare workers from seasonal coronaviruses and seasonal influenza. And they're reserving N95 respirators for only specific circumstances where you have uh, quote, pandemic phase respiratory viruses or other things like MERS and SARS-CoV-1 or tuberculosis, things where there's a lot more evidence that are kind of already assumed to be airborne. So they're really not updating the science like in terms of how they are applying these precautions. And they are setting themselves up to downgrade protections for COVID from an N95 to a surgical mask. And the other piece that I would call out here is that we know that these medical surgical Face masks are there, they don't protect you from inhaling um, infectious particles. They help reduce what you emit into the environment if you yourself are infected, but they don't help prevent you from breathing in infectious particles in the air. Um, and so we really need to see broader use of respirators, again, in the context of an uh, infection control program that also has ventilation as well as respiratory protection, but we really need to see a broader embrace of respiratory protection here to see a fuller understanding of what we've learned about how these viruses are actually transmitted. Thank you so much for that breakdown, Jane. I want to definitely get into the documents and some of the summaries, but is there anything else that you want to make sure that we touch on so that folks have that as kind of like a common ground before we get into some of the details, whether that's sort of the intent behind it, or if we want to discuss that in a moment, because um, obviously that we can sort of allege what it is, but we've got textual evidence in these summaries <laughs> of that. But if there's anything else that you feel like would be really, um, you want to make sure that like folks have top of mind before we jump into these, I just want to take a moment to open up for that too. So I think there's one other piece here that it's good for folks to know about before we get into the details of our, of the document dump. Um, and that's that, you know, a lot of us have been calling for HICPAC and the CDC to engage a wider range of experts. So, mm -hmm. I, you know, I think this is one of the root problems here is that HICPAC is governed pretty much exclusively by infectious disease clinicians who are running infection prevention programs at large healthcare corporations and uh, universities. So they really represent just one tiny perspective in all of the perspectives that are important to infection prevention, protecting patients, protecting healthcare workers. And our calls for HICPAC to engage that broader range of experts 
people including like industrial hygienists like myself, occupational medicine and, and, and nursing, ventilation experts, respiratory protection experts. Like these are folks who have not been engaged in this process. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Our calls have been actually rejected. Um, so the <laughs> CDC has sent a series. So there's, there, there's, there have been letters flying back and forth, right? Um, and then you has sent letters to the CDC, a group of experts. There's that big experts letter that we talked about last mm-hmm. time. Right. Um, And the CDC responded to that. And in each of these responses, um, they make it quite clear that they feel like HICPAC has a broad range of expertise already (laughs) represented and that they have no plans to open up the process. They feel like they're already meeting the requirements for transparency under the Federal Advisory Committee Act. And they tell us to wait for the Federal Register posting uh-huh. after they've made all of their decisions, right? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I will also say that Mandy Cohen, <laughs> the CDC director, um, refused to meet with our executive director at NNU about wow. these issues. Amazing. NNU is <laughs> the largest labor union for registered nurses in this country, and she refused to meet with us. She sent us a letter that said, send a comment into the Federal Register. That's very much <laughs> Um, so I think wow. that that's kind of the other piece here is that like mm. we have actually been making constructive recommendations to the CDC for how to um, make this process work. Actually, a group of scientific experts put together a workshop like what the CDC could and should be doing that happened last Friday. It was recorded. I can share oh, the link very with you cool. if you're yeah, interested. Please do. And if you want some more of this, we heard from scientists and stakeholders who have important expertise to this process, but who've been excluded from the CDC's process. Um, so that's that's a really great resource for people who want, it was about three hours long for people who want to dig into a little bit more detail. So I can send that to you um, yeah. after. Please send us the link. We'll include that in the episode description and, mm-hmm. and link to it in the transcript as well. Yeah. So, you know, we're making these constructive suggestions to the CDC for like how they could be doing this in a way that engages with everyone who's going to be seriously impacted by it. And the messages that we're getting are, no, you know, we're seeing them make some adjustments around their process, but they're not willing, they're they're making it clear that they're not willing to open up the process to the point that we're about two weeks away from this meeting where Mm -hmm. HICFAC's supposed to be voting on finalizing these (laughs) Mm -hmm. items. And we haven't seen the full draft yet, right? Mm -hmm. We've only seen their, their proposals. They've not released the draft. Just because you you've just mentioned, you know, we, we've been talking, this meeting is coming up soon and CDC have have not released this draft to the public, which is ridiculous, by the way, because CDC is a is a federal agency. They work for us. Um, technically, I think. Well, yeah, technically. I mean, so I think we we have a right, you know, to see to see these documents and to see what these proceedings have been. But I wanted to ask you perhaps now might be a good time, you know, with this meeting right around the corner and before we we delve really deeply into some of the, the document dump, <laughs> as you put it, <laughs> um, what are the priorities for NNU right now? And what are the current asks that NNU has? Like, what are the organizing priorities and how can folks support you, say, like if they are listening to this and um, and wanting to to support, you know, greater transparency in this process? Thanks for that question. So, like I said, the meeting is just about two weeks away and CDC has not made the draft public. So that is one of our number one priorities right now is just advocating for the CDC to make that draft public so that the public can actually weigh in and patients can share how this 
will impact them. Healthcare workers can share how it will impact them. And all of the other scientific experts who've been excluded from this process can weigh in with their expertise. And so we have a, and then you just put together a, what's called a click to email form. So it's an, a website that you go to and you can see the email and then you just put in your information and press send and it sends the email to CDC leaders. So the email is calling for three things. It's urging the CDC to release the draft with ample time for public review ahead of any vote. We're very careful and specific because that is what actually needs to happen. Mm -hmm. The second thing that it asks them to do is to hold public meetings, to actually fully engage with the people who are going to be impacted by this guidance and the people who have really essential perspectives um, before there's any vote on the guidance. Um, And three, we are pushing them once again to fully recognize the science on aerosol transmission. So we've got that. You can see the email. The email is going to CDC leaders. It's going to Dr. Mandy Cohen um, and then some other folks who are overseeing the HICPAC process. Um, there's three other folks who are in the chain of command over HICPAC. They're the staff who support HICPAC. So um, that is number one. If you can send that email, that is super helpful to keep up that message to the CDC, to those folks who are making these decisions about what gets made. Uh, public and when, so that they continue to hear from us about the importance of seeing the draft ahead of any vote. Um, so that's that's the number one. Um, and the number two is that you can always, if you want to, sign up to comment at the meeting that's happening November 2nd and 3rd. Um, the deadline to submit a uh, request to speak uh, verbally at the meeting is October 23rd. Um, The CDC says that they're going to conduct the lottery and then select speakers ahead of the meeting. This is a new system that they've developed. And uh, you can also submit a written comment if you don't get selected to submit a verbal comment and the CDC is accepting written comments between November 1st and 6th. You can email them to hickpack at cdc.gov. So those are the two main ways that folks can engage here at this point. That is awesome. So, so folks can, um, we will put the website um, where you can send um, these letters to the CDC, presumably in like the episode description or something. Um, encouraging our listeners to do this last time was really, really successful. So, you know, I definitely encourage people to do it. And I mean, I just encourage people to give the CDC a piece of your mind, you know, like technically they work for us, it's a public agency, their work should be made public and should be accountable to the to the public. And I think sometimes that we kind of forget about that. So, you know, sending the email and then um, if you want to help out a little bit more, sign up to give a public comment in this meeting um, that is coming up soon. Also, I just made a short link for it. Uh, so listeners, if you want to go to bit bit.ly forward slash all caps dpnnu2, uh, that'll bring you right there. We'll also put the link in the episode description. Jane, before we move on, now that we have that link out there, can we actually talk about why the comments uh, have changed this time? Because this <laughs> this is actually kind of part of the pressure. What I really appreciate is the way that you foregrounded the fact that some of the wins here are things that were previously declared quite surely, 100%, definitely impossible and never going to happen. No way. The idea even that CDC would make these videos available online is fascinating as someone who has been, um, you know, studying all of the things that the CDC has done output wise in the last couple of years. 
you know, it's not common at all for them to be this public. They're very used to kind of having the discretion to not have to necessarily kind of have a lasting record of of how things get the way that they are. And obviously, part of the success of this pressure was the delay of the vote. But it's also, you know, the things that were previously impossible that have been proven that 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 declaration of impossibility was actually just, you know, the kind of farce that we knew it to be. So do you mind talking about, you know, how the comments went at that meeting in August and sort of how overwhelming those comments were and how that's actually resulted now in um, this kind of highly metered like lottery system that they're trying to implement for this one? Yeah, thank you for asking about that. Um, So the uh, August meeting, um, they didn't have this kind of lottery system set up. You just registered ahead of time to speak, and then they uh, called on people in the order that hands were raised on Zoom during the public comment session. They ended up cutting off public comment after just 14 people spoke. Um, They spent about 45 minutes on public comment. Obviously, we don't know exactly how many people didn't get to speak, but just from my organizing, there were multiple dozen. Um, I've also been helping different folks track their written comments. So a lot of people who didn't get to speak at the meetings chose to submit a written comment. Um, Side note, that's also a major win here. So before we started organizing, um, written comments had to be turned in about a week ahead of the meeting before you saw the agenda. So you just kind of had to guess what they were going to be talking about. (laughs) And and as of the August meeting, the deadline for them to accept written comment, for HICPAC to accept written comment was extended until after the meeting. So people actually had the opportunity to say, I wasn't heard at the meeting. I still have an opportunity to share my input. And I've gotten so many people sharing their comments with me. Um, We haven't seen the official meeting minutes yet. Um, Those don't usually get posted for like four to six months. Um, Mm -hmm. But we'll make sure that people who submitted those comments, um, uh, that their their comments ended up in the official record. Um, So that's, you know, we have seen, you know, the CDC, like, they invited public comment. They posted this blog post earlier this summer where they were saying, you know, we really want to hear from the public on these issues. Come talk to us at the August meeting. And then at the August meeting, they said, oh, we're only going to hear from 14 people and then we're done. And we're not going to make the written comments available ahead of the next meeting where our committee is going to vote. So, you know, there's there's still work to be done here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And there's still clearly a kind of entitlement to um, privacy that, you know, they don't they shouldn't have, especially when it's on something so consequential and that's being done with such a narrow sort of input. Right. Like a lot Mm -hmm. of the folks involved in this decision are people who have interests with various hospital groups and they have their expertise. Right. But the fact that the CDC keeps pushing back at you guys and saying, no, 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 we don't need anyone else. Right. Like (laughs) that, that kind of entitlement to neglect public input, to neglect the input of healthcare workers, to neglect um, you know, for Mandy Cohen to like decline to meet with NNU. I mean, it's 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 frustrating and it clearly is bothering the fuck out of them. And I think that's fantastic. Like these people should not sleep well at night. And I appreciate the fact that this is something that you've been pushing so hard on, Jane, because this is not just an opportunity for us to try and like 
resist an immediate change in terms of the pandemic, but this is also creating mm-hmm. record-making opportunities and adding to the like the, the sort of government administrative record things that have been difficult to get on the record. If we think about stuff like the shift from um, six feet to three feet of distancing um, <laughs> or the change in isolation uh, recommendations from 10 days to five days, right? Like these are moments where we knew all of the same dynamics that are on the record here were at play, but the process by which those things happened was not as slow as this and um, not as, not something that we could interface with in the same way. And the wonderful thing about the comments, especially at the meeting in August, is that folks were really bringing in um, sort of like a, a multidimensional uh, pandemic analysis into a lot of their statements, making sure to get sort of these things on the record. And that's been something that's actually been very difficult to do. Like Death Panel is a project in some ways, like we've been trying to keep track of the pandemic in <laughs> real time. And part of that is because we know that what we're up against is like an active rewrite in real time of what's happening, what's happened, and what it all means. And ultimately, the fact of the matter is, is that COVID is ongoing. And as you mentioned, Jane, it's not the only respiratory virus um, <laughs> that is responsible for needless, pointless, preventable infections in healthcare settings. Yeah. Maybe this can like bridge us into getting into some of what's in the document because, you know, I think you bringing up the, um, the three foot, six foot thing and the, the abrupt change in guidance. And here, you know, we can see very, very clearly. And thanks to, you know, the, the efforts of NNU, we have actual documentation to back up what I feel like we have been saying on this podcast all along, which is that, you know, the CDC is a, it's a federal agency, it's a public agency, but the function of the CDC is to facilitate the ongoing functioning of capitalism, like the ongoing ability of, you know, the healthcare actors in the healthcare sector to profit off of a situation where, you know, the vibes are really, really deteriorating. Like I was reading through some of these these documents posted to the NNU website last night, and I just kept thinking like, this is risk stratified, tailored infection control guidance for hospitals that are chronically and severely understaffed. And I feel like that's kind of like the under the under narrative of what's going on is that the state in general is kind of like divesting from the very idea of workplace safety and doing it through this incredibly sort of like bureaucratic channel. And so I don't know, maybe this will be a good time to, to get into some of what's actually in in the document. No, I, I think that's really astute. And I don't think that it's an under narrative. I think that this is actually the explicit narrative that mm-hmm. PICPAC and CDC staff, I think it's important to recognize that there are CDC staff deeply embedded in this process in the work group that's actually developing the updates to this guidance. And they've had an explicit goal from the beginning of this process to make the guidance have more flexibility for employers. Like that has right. been that has been publicly reported at HICPAC meetings, right? That's not even, we didn't even need to wait for these, this FOIA <laughs> yeah, request to, to be answered, right? Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And that that is a direct result of the healthcare industry's desire 
to, you know, the language that we use around it at NNU is to, um, is to codify or to maintain crisis standards. Yes. We've seen across the board in multiple industries, but especially in healthcare, these, these corporations, these employers um, using the pandemic to, as an excuse, as a reason Mm -hmm. to institute these cost cutting measures that Mm -hmm. simply help the bottom line at the expense of patients and workers. And what we're seeing here is the CDC doing what they can around infection control guidance to make that long-term, to make that not just about COVID, but about every single infectious disease that we see in healthcare settings. Like this is this is guidance that is incorporated by reference by CMS into stat, like into not statute, into um, enforceable regulations. This is mm-hmm. guidance that's incorporated by reference by OSHA. This is, you know, this is has really broad ranging impacts you know, some people will say, well, the CDC doesn't have enforcement authority, <laughs> but the reality is that this is the document that people go to. Yes. And if we're talking about, you know, employers in many ways being given, you know, we could even talk about some of the crisis and contingency standards as a menu for employers mm-hmm. to race to the bottom mm-hmm. so that they, they can, you know, remove protections from the facility and then turn around and say, well, we're following CDC guidance. Right. But that's just... That has really, it's had terrible consequences for for healthcare workers and patients during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it will have terrible implications moving forward for everything, you know, for tuberculosis, for influenza, not just for COVID. Absolutely. I mean, Jane, the last time we spoke, one of the things I really appreciated was like the discussion that you and I had about the way that they were kind of using um, routine versus novel as these (laughs) ways of sort of differentiating different types of air precautions necessary and how that is part of the construction of kind of forcing the position of COVID into it's just a seasonal virus. It's just like the flu. It's just like whatever. So, you know, beyond like sort of setting the standards, we also have like how this factors into liability, how this factors into what um, employers can be held accountable for in terms of like what in- expected impairments are going to be in in the workforce as a result of these changes, right? And this ultimately is one of those moments where you can really see kind of very visible privatization in the way that like people like Melinda Cooper write about it, right? Where you see basically the kind of transference of responsibility and also the costs and the risk from the employer directly onto employees and as individuals. It's one of those mm-hmm. dynamics that we talk about all the time in terms of like disability policy, for example, or the pandemic itself, the idea of sort of everyone um, needing to do personal risk calculations, right? And the kind of fatigue of like forcing everyone to enter into these complex moments of decision making. And what this ultimately is doing is it's setting minimum standards across the board. And the idea that like, oh, well, the the CDC doesn't have enforcement authority is just so it's fucking ridiculous. I mean, (laughs) they don't need it, right? Like this, as you pointed out, and I just want to emphasize again, this is a point of reference for so many things. And this is going to reverberate beyond the United States. Like we know that other health systems are going to look to this shift when they're Mm -hmm. looking at their own guidance. So this is a really, really, really important moment of sort of slippage during the pandemic where we're seeing 
you know, the shifts in our political economy, the way that it's reacted to COVID, um, the way that it tries to continually sort of force the idea of endemicity on COVID. I mean, I'm thinking back to that. Um, it brings to mind, you know, the McKinsey um, report that came out, <laughs> what was it, in 2021 or 2022, where they were like, we're, we're talking about the three phases of endemicity, and the third phase was economic endemicity. So part of, like, what is going on here is obviously a labor issue. It is a workplace safety issue. It is a um, literal access issue in terms of um, both workplace and healthcare access for folks who are immunocompromised like myself. And beyond that, like this is also going to be a have financial repercussions in terms of like putting costs onto employees that can't be put onto the employer. Um, and again, sort of being able to also set the standards lower for what the legal liability is going to be. And I really mm -hmm. appreciate the the kind of call to crisis standards um, in terms of like how NNU is trying to conceptualize this, because the thing it reminds me the most of is what uh, governors like Andrew Cuomo did immediately in response to the pandemic was shift liability law in relation to nursing homes to make sure that nursing homes were not going to just be absolutely flooded with lawsuits kind of participating in the creation of the circumstances of like death making that we saw in nursing homes by really kind of preemptively making it real in the law, right? Ultimately, this is how our healthcare system works. It's not designed to deliver care. It's designed to make markets. And so <laughs> often, Nurses are kind of this mediating line between the extraction of care and the actual delivery of care. And so that's why it's also so important, I think, that this is a fight that is coming from all angles, but is in particular solidarity with the people who are delivering healthcare right now and also like facing tremendous like downward pressure on wages. Um, pressure in terms of staffing, like the conditions of work for healthcare workers are getting worse and worse. And this is going to just exacerbate it and also make things more expensive and put the cost, the actual physical risk of nursing and make it higher. I think that that <laughs> is on point. You know, I think we're seeing so many nurses and other healthcare workers opt to leave their jobs, to leave their professions entirely in many cases because of the dangerous conditions, because of their employers not protecting them, because of um, their safety being, you know, really sidelined in many ways in the name of, you know, for, for their employers to prioritize profit. And this guidance that the CDC is and HICPAC are, are working on updating will, like you said, only exacerbate that situation if they continue in the direction that they're headed. Perhaps this is a good time to get into some of the analysis of the work group meeting summaries that were released. So, you know, the first point that NNU sort of has set up here in their breakdown of what's in the documents is that the work group has prioritized employer costs and profits over robust protections for healthcare workers and patients, exactly as we've been talking about. So, Jane, do you mind setting up the documents and then getting into sort of this first point and what you found in them that sort of supported and, and really kind of confirmed that for you all? Yeah, so what these documents are are summaries of the workgroup meetings from February 2022 when they first started meeting through May 2023. So we don't have the last couple of months, but we have a pretty solid 
stretch. Um, they were meeting about every two weeks during that period. Um, and, you know, we've seen like consistently, like throughout this process, we see this idea of um, this focus of on, on flexibility, feasibility for employers is like really key in a lot of the discussions that the work group has had. So for example, um, they have talked about a lot of times, like how to determine when to use respirators. Um, and they, you know, they talk about needing to look at like the science, but they also talk about needing to look at what they call factors other than transmission. So talking about like the proportion of the population at risk, at high risk, the oh, impact God. on health systems. So things like staffing levels, they are saying should go into <laughs> deciding when respirators are used. Um, they talk about the availability of effective diagnosis and treatment. So they're really focused on not using respirators in every situation where we have a, a pathogen that we know is aerosol transmitted. They really want to focus on what's high risk. Like, let's limit the use of respirators to only those situations where we don't have other things in place. And actually, there are places where the work group talked explicitly about um, not having protections in place where someone's vaccinated. So they're saying they've talked about um, if you have a, a healthcare worker who's vaccinated for varicella, maybe they don't need a respirator when they walk into that room and or, or for measles. And that is not <laughs> what that is not how you protect workers. That is not how the science works. Like that's not how vaccines work across the board. And that is not how you protect workers. But that is what the work group has discussed. And I think that, you know, this is one of the places where it's like, really abundantly clear that they only have one perspective in the room, really. Oh, yeah. Well, just think about, <laughs> I, I feel like I was talking to B about this, like last night. Um, just think about, like, if this work group were in charge of writing, I don't know, guidelines for the public about safe sex. You know, you think about, <laughs> you think about like, act up, no glove, no love is a perfect public health slogan. It's easy. You can remember it. It's clear, you know, like it accomplishes what it communicates, what it's supposed to communicate. These, these guidelines, like this is doing something else entirely. So I'm sorry, I've just been ranting a little bit, but oh my God, some of the stuff you were saying is just like astonishing. Well, <laughs> it's, uh, honestly, it kind of feels like it's all filtered through everybody's kind of um, armchair epidemiology that they've like jacketed themselves in the last couple of years. I mean, this desire to be able to pinpoint populations and um, make these kind of flexible solutions, like obviously these are very attractive from the standpoint of mm -hmm. um, the employer, right? Who's always yep. looking for the bare minimum and, you know, this is kind of the ideology of cost-benefit analysis. I'm thinking so much of the conversation, the fantastic conversation we had, I think it was December of 2021 with Frank Pasquale. Um, we talk about cost-benefit analysis and some of the ways that this dictates and shapes the actual sort of theories of governance, how it <laughs> is in itself often a theory of governance, you know, especially in the last 30, 40 years. I'm thinking back to something actually that, we brought I brought into the last conversation with you, Jane, which was I had been looking at research done by the NHS in the 90s around um, hand washing and glove compliance. This is actually a post 
HIV AIDS um, early years of the epidemic kind of uh, analysis, right? Looking at after the quote unquote crisis phase ended, once uh, norms started being established for glove wearing, hand washing, and that changed um, and became institutionalized, how effective was it in sort of changing people's resistant attitudes and things like that? And, and what a lot of these analyses found, again, like early 90s, mid 90s, late 90s, late 80s, um, is that the clearer the recommendation and the more simple and universal the recommendation, like the better compliance because you're reducing like the cognitive load on healthcare workers who already have like a series of decisions about safety and choices that they have to run through and considerations anytime they approach any part of their job function. And so what COVID has done is it's so funny that so often like pandemic fatigue is invoked as if it is this thing that just exists out in the ether all on its own and it's affecting people. And that's why, you know, pandemic fatigue, which comes out of nowhere, is making people not comply with protections. And because protections are, you know, not being complied with well, we shouldn't do them at all and we should make everything optional has basically been the logic. But ultimately what this instance is really good um, at sort of articulating and, and showing is the fact that that pandemic fatigue is a cognitive load that has been put upon us by the way that we've approached the pandemic through this idea of being able to stratify and quantify risk to an impossible degree, ultimately towards the benefit of the accumulation of capital and not in a way that allows us to survive through the process of, of what's going on in terms of how the end of the pandemic is sort of being produced. I think you know, for so many folks right now who are immunocompromised, every single appointment involves the most serious cost-benefit analysis and risk analysis of your entire life. It is so much work to access care, and it is so much work right now that is being concentrated on so few workers. And ultimately, like, hospitals are doing great. Insurance companies are doing great. Pharma is doing great. The rest of us are, are sort of where that that surplus comes from, right? It's it's being extracted from workers, from patients, from all of us, you know, who are exposed to COVID, whether we ever walk into a healthcare facility or not. Every COVID infection is connected to every other COVID infection. And the same with every other infectious disease, right? So ultimately, like it's a great example of how we've also seen this thinking throughout the pandemic that's been very harmful. That's reproduced here as well, especially of like pretending that that certain institutions exist in little bubbles or certain types of people exist in little bubbles and aren't actually just a part of society. So I think what you are talking about is borne out in these meeting summaries. Mm. Like the work group has been explicit from the beginning that they want their draft to constitute a minimum requirement for protection. And they want to allow for individuals to voluntarily be able to choose to do more than required. The example that they give is wear a non-fit tested respirator. The other example that they give is that a healthcare worker who is immunocompromised may choose a higher level of protection than recommend. Right. So they're, you know, they're really focused on this minimum standard and then telling employers like you can do whatever you want beyond this. And healthcare workers, like you can protect yourself if you want to, if your employer happens to make N95 respirators available to you, 
or if they happen to uh, like give you fit testing, right, which is an important component of making sure an N95 respirator actually protects you in the workplace. The other things that we found are that from the beginning of this process, like from the first meeting, the work group has plans to rely on their own expert opinion where scientific evidence is lacking. Um, and even Great. where they are, there is scientific evidence, we've seen them really rely on their own expert opinion. Um, you know, I think there's this big issue around the evidence review on N95 respirators and surgical masks mm-hmm. um, that I believe we talked about last time. The CDC staff um, did an evidence review for the work group. It was super biased and incomplete um, to evaluate the effectiveness of N95s compared to surgical masks to prevent. Um, transmission of respiratory illnesses to healthcare workers. They cherry-picked data from the studies that they included. They have yet to actually tell us why they included the studies that they included and why they didn't include other studies. Like, you know, there's other studies that should have been included that are very clear about the impacts, like clear about N95s being more protective that aren't part of their evidence review and we don't know why they didn't include them. Um, And like even... In that situation, right, like we're seeing, for example, like the work group literally took a vote at one point to decide what their recommendations were going to be for respiratory protection for the different like categories for like seasonal coronaviruses, seasonal influenza, pandemic influenza, pandemic COVID. They literally took a vote. You know, they, they there's tons of science available on this issue. And what they chose to do was like hear some of that science and then take a vote. They didn't oh. they didn't hear from a lot of the scientists who've done the research. They didn't look at a lot of the research that they should have before they made those decisions. And here we are ending up with their proposals, which are to use a surgical mask to protect yourself, not not protect yourself. It, you know, it's not going to protect you. But for for seasonal influenza, seasonal coronaviruses. Yeah. I mean it's it's um you know the the kind of minimum requirement for protection point um that that you brought up. I want to circle back to that for a moment. Um because I think what we've seen and what we've talked about is that, you know, choice rhetoric is being weaponized here to kind of create the idea that everybody has this a la carte menu of pandemic protections and respiratory protections and job protections. And you know what? You just pick what you want. And the very insidious thing about this is that it acts a lot like the language of like access to affordable care. In, in that you get the kind of sense that um, the care is out there and folks can access it if they want it, right? This is the kind of, this is what neoliberalism kind of does. This is the warp of neo- neoliberalism in so many ways, which is like, how do we take something that is a public good and privatize it through choice rhetoric, right? Which is ultimately like hospitals, let's just be real, hospitals have an obligation to reduce infections inside of them. Yes. There are 
um, ways that, for example, CMS can punish hospitals for infections that happen in hospitals. They punish hospitals all the time financially for certain types of in-hospital infections, right? So one of the things we've talked about in the past is like, this is some, this is a, a point where, you know, CMS could push hospitals to um, actually step up their protections on COVID. But these guidelines are also about like kneecapping things like that, right? Because ultimately, like it's difficult to justify imposing financial penalties or like refusing Medicare payments to hospitals because they have too many COVID infections. If the COVID guidance basically says you ha- you don't need to do shit and everything's fine, you know, Jane, as you uh, in your analysis, you know, the second point of the analysis, you talk about the fact that. They've explicitly discussed, you know, downgrading protections for healthcare workers who are caring for patients who are COVID positive and inpatient. Yes. Um, and I think that that is, you know, it, it was a worry that we had that they were setting themselves up to do that based on the June presentation. And these work group summaries really confirm that. Um, they, you know, they talked about as far back as 2022 that in their own facilities, so remembering that HICPAC and this work group are pretty much their their clinicians running infection prevention programs at hospitals and other healthcare facilities. And so what they were saying in these meetings was that at their facilities, um, based on when there was a shortage of respirators and they switched to using isolation masks, they didn't see any difference in the rate of infection of healthcare workers in their facilities. And so based on that anecdotal evidence, you know, like they are saying, we don't, we probably don't need a respirator for COVID, which, you know, there's so many issues with this, right? There's so many issues like, A, we don't actually have clear data that there was a shortage of respirators mm. nationwide. You know, there were so many healthcare employers who took the respirators off of the patient care units, locked them up, told nurses that there were plenty of respirators in storage, but they weren't allowed to have them except in specific conditions like um, performing an aerosol generating procedure on a COVID patient. And that otherwise they weren't allowed to access them. You know, like that, (laughs) that is the situation under which isolation masks were used. It was only after the CDC released their crisis and contingency standards that hospitals started using isolation masks for COVID patients. Like before that, they were still using respirators. And then I think the other issue here is that the tracking of healthcare worker infections with COVID during the pandemic has been like appalling. Mm -hmm. It just, it hasn't Uh, happened in an effective way. And in fact, we've seen multiple um, publications, right? Like put forward by health departments or even by um, like, staff at hospitals themselves um, claiming that they found that healthcare workers were more likely to be infected in the community than in the workplace, right? Like we've heard that phrase so many times through the pandemic, but when you look at their methodology, they didn't look for asymptomatic infections. Mm -hmm. They didn't test people unless they were symptomatic. They didn't do any kind of like proactive or thorough exposure notification, right? There, there are so many issues with their methodology that mean that their results like weren't weren't reliable. Yep. Or we saw them one paper that was published in the MMWR, the CDC's journal, that selected a, a small subset of healthcare worker infections 
to draw that conclusion from. And they didn't look at all of the healthcare worker infections that have been reported in their state. So, you know, I think, well, and on top of that, the CDC has now made reporting of hospital acquired COVID cases optional for hospitals Mm -hmm. in their um, data reporting for hospitals right now that Mm -hmm. happened in June. So, you know, I think like there's, there's kind of like two sides here, right? The, The work group, is really focused on uh, HICPAC and CDC staff who are supporting them are really focused on like trying to use fewer protections in as many cases as possible, Mm -hmm. specifically including for COVID. (laughs) And there's this like other effort to not track the data so that it can like support this move to use fewer protections. No data, no problem, right? (laughs) Right. And, uh, you know, I think that's, like NNU has been tracking healthcare worker infections since the beginning of the pandemic, at least through when the data was available in May. And like, if you look at multiple time points throughout 2020, 2021, 2022, um, the numbers that our staff found of healthcare workers who had been infected or who had died from COVID that were publicly reported were multiples were two, three, four times higher than what the CDC was reporting on the website. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, that that's just like one example of like where the CDC is just not doing their due diligence on understanding what the actual scope of healthcare worker infections from COVID has, has been. And instead they're relying on this like expert opinion, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> where um, the explicit goal of these experts on HICPAC is to have fewer protections in place at the end of this process. Yeah. It's so striking to me because it's the same playbook. It's just the same playbook that we saw deployed around schools maybe two years ago in terms of how you can use, you know, the tools of science, you know, and and data and sort of scientific analysis to conduct class war, you know, like this is fucking class war that the CDC, you know, is waging on behalf of the U.S. government and it's like besties, you know, in the hospital and insurance industries. And it's so appalling to me how scientific methodologies and language are sort of mobilized and conscripted into, you know, this kind of very, very aggressive process to strip people of, of critical, critical protections, you know, at work and, and patients as well. Um, and I'm just not even sure where I'm going with this, but I did want to highlight, I did want to highlight that parallel a little bit because I don't know, this is just like one more way that, that COVID is not over. And one more way that like the state is stepping in to sort of mediate and like redistribute and hide the burden of COVID that, that is still ongoing. And, um, I really appreciate like NNU's efforts to kind of politicize this and, and draw a lot of attention to this. And I guess, I guess that's all that I, that I really want to say. No, and I I really appreciate the analysis that, that you all have done. And I recommend that folks go to the website. We'll link to that in the episode description. Um, there's a lot more detail here. You can read all of the um, summaries. There are PDFs of all of them there. But um, I really appreciate the breakdowns that NNU has put together. And there's a lot more about um, the expert opinion framing that we've been talking about in there um, and about the kind of evidence review and the, the bias and the incompleteness of 
you know, how they were constructing um, the evidence that they were going to use to make these decisions. But the fifth point on on your list here um, talks about like this consistent orientation um, towards recommending fewer precautions. And you get into a couple of really good specific examples. And so I wondered if we could just sort of close on that and um, maybe we'll just get to sort of uh, the call of action again towards the end and then we can just uh, go from there. Yeah, so I think this was a big one, right? And this is one of the one the points that I think the work group summaries really made it clear. Mm-hmm. Um, this point that we we suspected but didn't have like in in writing before yeah. we got got these documents. So some of the examples of like how we saw this playing out is that um, they had um, a lot of discussions about standard precautions. So the idea that there are some basic like infection control practices that you always have in place just in case the patient has an infectious disease that you don't know. This this dates back to the beginning of the HIV epidemic, um, hepatitis B, like in the 80s and 90s with universal precautions. And it's like that, that idea has been updated to standard precautions. And so they talk about how standard precautions are not always followed in healthcare settings. And the work group members' conclusion about this like, discussion was that the answer is likely to need to limit the ways that um, the times that we use these precautions, they'll be easier to enforce if there are fewer patients who need them. Are you fucking <laughs> serious? That's the language that they use. Oh, right? my and so, God. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's why I really know, wanted to talk about this one. <laughs> right. So like that is that's not good healthcare, Right. Good healthcare is protecting every patient um, because the reality is that like you don't know whether someone has hepatitis B or HIV or is MRSA colonized, or even if they have COVID just by looking at them, right? Oh my, you look fine. I'm just like not going to wear gloves. Like, oh my God. Right. And so, you know, this is not just about protecting the healthcare workers. This is also about protecting the patients and thinking about like, when this patient leaves this bed, what are we going to clean before the next patient comes and uses it? Right. It's not just about protecting the healthcare worker. It's also about like protecting other patients and protecting that patient themselves. You know, some other examples, like we also talked about earlier, like this idea about vaccines by themselves being sufficient protection um, coming up multiple times throughout the like year and a half of, of meeting summaries that we have. Um, for example, they talked about um, only um, using source control. So like only asking people to wear masks for seasonal flu during a year when the vaccine is not as effective. Oh my God. So like God. relying mostly on the vaccine. Like never mind that we don't know whether the vaccine's effective or not until like the year is basically yeah, over. Like, yeah. Let's talk about the process for establishing that with evidence. Like how I mean, gnarly that, that would be. It's codifying like let it rip and saying let's apply it to flu now. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, they... They have had this explicit goal of trying to take the use of N95 respirators and separate it from when airborne infection isolation rooms are used. So I would say that also, like, you know, they are focused on just limiting when airborne infection isolation rooms or negative pressure rooms. So these are for people who don't aren't familiar. These are rooms in healthcare settings that are specially built so that if you have a patient who has an infectious disease like tuberculosis, where it is infectious and you need to make sure that the air is contained. So the room is built so that the air in that room doesn't circulate with the rest of the facility until it's filtered through a HEPA filter. 
Um, so the the work group has really wanted to limit how often they're recommending that these rooms be used in large part because there simply weren't enough of them at the beginning of the COVID pandemic. Never mind the fact that like there's, you know, there are ways to change a regular room to a, be negative pressure that lots of facilities implemented, not enough of them. Um, but, you know, like they're, they're just like jumping straight to like, well, we should just use it less mm-hmm. rather than thinking about like, how do we improve ventilation and how do we like increase the number of airborne infection isolation rooms? Um, because the reality is that like novel pathogens are appearing more and more often with the climate crisis, increased globalization, deforestation, industrial agriculture, like all these factors, right? That like novel pathogens are appearing more often. The next pandemic could only, I mean, realistically, it could only be weeks away. We don't actually know. Mm -hmm. Like truly, we don't actually know when the next pandemic is going to hit. And what we learned from COVID, well, one of the things that COVID really made clear, I wouldn't say we learned it from COVID pandemic because we knew it before, but that healthcare facilities weren't prepared just on the simple like infrastructure basis when it comes to having spaces to make sure that patients are isolated so that other patients coming into the facility for care that they need, like someone coming in with a heart attack or someone coming in for a cancer treatment, aren't then exposed to that pathogen. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, so these are some of the issues that we saw come up in these meeting summaries. I mean, the really frustrating and terrifying thing is that, so I'm coming at this from a, a disability studies perspective. That's like what my background's in. And um, there is a very famous lecture by a person who's a sort of canon <laughs> uh, for disability studies, which is uh, the psychiatrist Wolf Wolfensberger. And he gives this lecture on the architecture of, of care um, throughout history. And one of the things in that lecture that's like just so wonderful is that you see how tuberculosis really changes hospital architecture and care architecture and the lessons that we, the very painful lessons that we learn about fresh air and circulation. And then he walks through the many times we've unlearned them, dealt with resurgent um, you know, epidemics and pandemics. And it really feels like this is a moment where we are experiencing a kind of unlearning of germ theory uh, mm-hmm. and an unlearning of, you know, centuries old knowledge, ten, like thousands of years of knowledge about how like air circulation and separating patients away from each other reduces overall morbidity and mortality in that care infrastructure. If you go back to some of the earliest like spaces for delivering care, like separating patients from one another was so key. And ultimately what we're seeing is this moment of unlearning. And so I really appreciate you walking us through all of this, Jane. And if folks are you know, feeling really full of rage, uh, obviously, please go ahead and sign up to testify. Uh, go to bit.ly forward slash DPNNU2 um, and sign the letter to release the draft. And uh, I really appreciate it, Jane. Thank you so much again for coming on. And folks, if you want to learn more about all of this, there's also the episode that we did in August. We'll link to that in the episode description. And I'm sure we will be talking at some point uh, in the winter after this nomad memory meeting now. Yes, yes. Thank you guys so much. And I just want to say another thank you to your listeners who've been engaged on this. Like, it's just, it's having such a huge impact at the CDC. Like, we still have work to do, but we've seen so much movement already. I want people to feel good about that um, and good about what it means to take action again, that it will have an impact.
Well, I appreciate that. Thank you so much, Jane. I think that's the perfect place to leave it for today. To support the show, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod to get access to our second weekly bonus episode and entire back catalog. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism at your local bookstore, pre-order a copy of Jules's new book coming January called A Short History of Trans Misogyny, or request them both at your local library and follow us at deathpanel underscore. And again, sign the letter. It's at bit.ly forward slash all caps DPNNU2. And as always, Medicare for all now, solidarity forever, stay alive another week.